I had built what, you know, what many would call an institutionally classist, racist and sexist organization. And that experience hit me very hard because I was the final decision maker. I really had to reckon with my own responsibility into that. On today's episode, I chatted with Garrett Nyman, who is the author of the book, Rich White Men. I know what you're thinking. What? Why did I talk to him? I was really surprised at how much I loved this book and how much I've been recommending it to everyone. And Garrett and I got into the themes he explores in his book, which are about how middle-class white men are part of the solution because so many of the bigger problems that are systemic affect all of us and very often straight rich white men have the most power to be change makers but really this is a conversation about how to be an ally how to show up in spaces where your voice doesn't need to be centered how to help make change how to find communities where you can find like-minded people who want to change the world in the same ways you do and how we're all part of the solution because none of us are the problem the system is the problem so how would you like to introduce yourself absolutely so uh, my name is garrett diamond i use he him pronouns and i live in uh on Pawtucket land in uh, boston massachusetts and uh, a little bit about my background that I grew up in Orange County, California, which is a affluent white suburb uh, south of Los Angeles. And uh, probably what shaped me the most growing up actually was that my younger brother died in an accident when I was six. That uh, I was six, he was two and a half. It completely turned my family's life upside down, as you might imagine. And really going through that traumatic experience at a young age, I think really set the direction of my life uh, in so many ways that I think it gave me a sense that life can be short, it can be fragile, uh, that I think I've always wanted to live a meaningful life, uh, you know, which I think helped draw me towards social change. But at the same time, I didn't have any systemic analysis related to race or class or gender or anything else uh, growing up, you know, so the way that manifested was I found myself working in nonprofits that I got started by raising money for my sister's former orphanage in Shenzhen, China, where she was born, uh, adopted sister. And in college, I started and ran a college access nonprofit called College Spring, helping low-income uh, American students of color prepare for the SATs in college that on the one hand was successful, you know, raised $15 million, a staff of 25, served 19,000 students during my tenure. Uh, but also, also every year I was in that work, it became more and more clear that our students faced really deep systemic barriers that programs like ours were ill-equipped to address. And also that many of the people who were funding our work or were considering funding our work brought a lot of bias, uh, you know, so that's really what led me down a road of feeling like uh, I needed to look at philanthropy from a more critical lens, inequality from a more critical lens, uh, but also look at myself from a more critical lens that that I had these frustrations with white male billionaires who, you know, really had a lot of power to decide who had a better life and who didn't. Uh, it took a little bit longer for me to see that for me being a 20 something, you know, starting a nonprofit out of my Stanford dorm room, 
you know, was in some ways a similar kind of power, you know, that we had staff members, people of color, women of color who went, were in their 30s and 40s. And I was this uh, 20-something white man who, uh, you know, had never lived in the communities we were serving. And so, you know, really have been spending the last several years reckoning with that, that I stepped down from my role at College Spring in 2017 and ever since have been trying to sort out you know, what are the root, what are actually the root causes of inequality, how they can be, how can they be addressed? And what is my role in that work, given the advantages I hold in society in my position and location? So I'll leave it there. That was one of the best introductions we've ever had. Thank you, where you took us on a journey. And I appreciate that. And also appreciate you explaining how you got to where you are right now. And in fact, that you've written this book and you are doing so much work around exposing the root causes of so much of the intersecting inequalities that shape our societies right now. And I'm curious about, I, I've, I've read your book and I love it and recommend it to everyone and my copy has already been loaned out several times <laughs> to several people and I think your book only came out like this week. Um, yep. So it's, it's making the rounds in my world at least. And it's interesting for me every time I hand the book to a person where I'm so conscious of like, we all want to do good, but, um, and I can air quote that, right? Like a lot of my world, at least people want to do good and we all have different kinds of privilege. Um, most people have some kind of privilege in terms of their identity, um, or many people do. And also like, so much of your book is really sitting in the discomfort of, yeah, that that's all true. And also like the way I exist in the world or the way I think is part of the problem. And at what point did you start to actually like face that really, in my mind, uncomfortable truth of like, okay, maybe like I, I need to change too. It's not just the world around me. Was there a moment, I imagine when you stepped down, that might've been part of it, but was there a moment when you started to really start seeing that, okay, I need to change as well. It's not just that I can look outward and start to change the world around me and that'll fix things. Absolutely. It's a really good question. And, and I think, on the one hand, there's a lot of moments, and I see this as a lifelong journey, so I also think there's going to be a bunch more moments. But on the other hand, I think if I were to, to highlight one that I think is the most, uh, feels like the biggest inflection point for me, what I, would, what I would recall is that I believe this was in 2016 at College Spring, we had an all-staff retreat. Uh, there were about 25 of us who were gathered together. And, you know, like many white-led organizations in the 2014, 15, 16 uh, period, you know, we were doing our first uh, diversity, equity, inclusion workshops. And I think at the time I had thought it was going to go well, that we, you know, were a staff that was majority people of color, majority women, uh, you know, we were doing, you know, to use your air quotes, good work. Um, you know, serving uh, high poverty students of color. And so, uh, you know, I had thought that that conversation was going to go really well, and it didn't. Uh, that I think it, that the environment that the facilitators helped create enabled, for, enabled the white women and people of color on our staff to voice things about my leadership, about the culture of our organization, about our board, the culture of our board, and so forth, that that I hadn't heard before uh, or hadn't heard as explicitly or directly. And 
you know, some of it probably was there and I just wasn't listening well enough. Uh, but in any event, you know, I think that was the moment that I really started to see that, that, uh, you know, the culture was not as, uh, positive and equitable as, as I had thought. And, you know, it's this interesting thing where it's not necessarily that the culture was all bad, uh, you know, and I really try to step away from this notion that, you know, that there's good people or bad people that I think, uh, you know, that for the most part, I think we're all kind of in, in between uh, somewhere. And so, you know, there were definitely ways that the culture was inclusive and equitable, but also there were a lot of ways that it wasn't and ways that people across differences experiences as harmful and career limiting and so forth, you know, so it was really that experience that led me to uh, led me to come to the conclusion that I had built what, you know, what many would call an institutionally classist, racist and sexist organization. And that experience hit me very hard because I was the final decision maker. I couldn't say, oh, it was, you know, somebody else who, who did this, that, you know, like, oh, it was someone else who, uh, you know, designed this country or built this company. Like it was me, you know, so I think I really had to reckon with my own responsibility into that. And I have some degree of empathy and compassion for myself and others, because I know that I didn't create that culture intentionally and that I was very much encouraged by, by society to create a culture that was like that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that I do need to take responsibility for that. And I've tried to do things differently going forward. I think it's what you're describing is something that also I imagine or I have seen happen a lot in the last few years, especially since 2020, where we're having more of these conversations in spaces like this and just more in public, right, where I feel like I was starting to have these conversations with friends long before I saw these conversations happening in public spaces, in media, in books like yours, in podcasts like this one. Um, and it's it's interesting because I still wonder a lot about it. It feels like I live in somewhat of a bubble or I try to burst the bubble a lot, but I am surrounded by people who are, or I try to surround myself with lots of people who are progressive in their politics, who do want to build a more equitable world. Um, and from time to time, I will have a conversation with someone who has power and is the final decision maker and there's there's a point where like i wonder a lot about how do we have this conversation where we call people in don't call them out right like we bring people into the the change making as opposed to saying you are the problem dude like you should change how you are and that'll fix everything or you know you need to like really reckon with which is part of it like you do really need to we all need to reckon with the ways in which we can uphold these systemic problems and these systems of domination but it's also like really hard to have a conversation with someone and get them to listen to you and to feel heard themselves when it's like you're part of the problem and it seems like you actually heard that because it was the people around you who you cared about and who you had built something meaningful with who were telling you hey you might be part of the problem but I'm wondering about if there's someone listening to this and they're like going home for something in the summer to see family or you know like Christmas dinner rolls around and you're going to have that conversation with a family member who makes you really like angry. And it's how do you have the conversation in a way where two people are actually like listening to each other? And your book seems to be like 
almost a guidebook into how to have a conversation like that. But I'm wondering when a friend comes to you and says, Garrett, I, you know, I have this, have this friend who just doesn't get that what they're doing is really racist or really misogynistic and they need to, they need to hear me or they need to see it, but I have no idea how to tell them in a way that they will actually listen and hear it and do something with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a really big, challenging, complicated question. And I think one thing that comes up for me is that uh, reading Ibram Kendi's work, you know, Stamp from Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist and some of his other work is that I think one of the things that really hit me in that is the sense that uh, I really don't think there's anybody or, or there's very few people who actually think of themselves as racist, uh, like regardless of what uh, their viewpoints are. And, uh, you know, like that would, that would include uh, even people who are white nationalists or white supremacists, you know, that from the dialogue I've seen that uh, many of those people, they don't describe themselves as racist. They just think they're superior, you know, so like even in the most extreme cases of, of racism, you know, people don't identify as racist. There's this tendency to deny it regardless of what our viewpoints are, regardless of what our actions are and so forth, you know, which is challenging. So, you know, it's this interesting conundrum where I think, you know, that if we want to move folks, you know, I found that in order for people to listen, they need to feel heard first, you know, so that's really the approach I try to take with folks. But at the same time, uh, you know, really, really listening to someone who is emblematic or maybe even directly responsible for causing harm in your life is a, is a really big ask. So I actually think it's the most advantage of us who have a unique responsibility to, to validate those perspectives, pains, frustrations of people in our networks, and then to challenge them that I, I think of my work as really trying to, to impact my sphere of influence, that there's 8 billion people on this planet. Clearly, like, I'm not going impact to all, impact all of them. I shouldn't impact all of them because that would mean I had too much power if it were even possible. So, you know, we all have a sphere of influence. Um, and, you know, what does it look like to, you know, do the best we can to influence the people who are open to our perspectives? Um, you know, so that's the work that I try to do. It's, I, I, I resonate with that a lot. And I think it's, it's helpful and important to remember that like, we're not expected to change everything, which I know for a lot of people, me included, when you start to like really sit and look at the world as it exists right now, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed just by how much is broken and how much isn't working and how much doesn't serve the well-being of most people or our planet. Um, and just be like, okay, well, that's so much bigger than me, so much bigger than I am. I, I don't know where to start. And I, I find that I and so many people who are listening to this probably get stuck in the paralysis of I don't know where to start, right? That's the, that's the stuck point. And I'm not asking you for like the, the one thing because I hate the one thing because there's often more than one thing. But for you, when you have had to get out of that, I imagine everyone feels this way who's paying attention to the world, that sense of overwhelm. How do you get out of it? Where, yes, you have only influence over your own sphere of influence, but also, I find at least for me, 
that almost doesn't feel like enough, right? Like, how do I broaden my sphere of influence? How do I do more? How do I figure out what the best thing I can do is? And I get stuck in the questioning so often. And I'm wondering if that's the case for you or if it's just me being a person who asks too many questions and gets stuck in my head and how you get out of it, if, if you feel that way too. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really good it's a really good question. It's definitely something that uh, that I sometimes still still struggle with. Definitely have struggled with in the past and into the present. And I think the the thing that's been the most helpful to me on that front is to uh, really approach my work and efforts with a mindset that is really focused on experimentation. You know, so. What I mean by that is, uh, I don't know if you or listeners know, uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called Emergent Strategy uh, in the U.S., that she talks about how if we're going to move forward on social justice, that it's it's really about, you know, beginning with small experiments uh, that we try and test in the world and then eventually bring to scale. And those experiments can, you know, be as small as speaking up in a certain setting or being quiet in a certain setting. If you're a privileged person who historically has taken up a lot of space, uh, it could be, you know, uh, holding an event or taking on a project or starting a podcast like you, you have. There's so many different ways that we can contribute. And I think I find that if I look at my work as experimentation, then I'm a lot less attached to it, you know, that I don't have to be hung up on the notion that it's perfect or it's going to change the world in all the ways uh, that that I hope it will. And it's really about, you know, me moving the needle forward as best as I can, as best as I know how uh, in the moment. And this book is very much an example of that, that I, I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, writing this book is a guarantee of having the impact I hope it will have by any means, um, you know, but it's a way to try. You know, and and I hope that it encourages other people, particularly those who share my privileged background, to try to, you know, that I think that there's a there is that paralysis that, that you're talking about. And and there is this weird tension that privileged people both go way too fast and kind of like are a bull in a china shop uh, when they come into spaces. And there's also analysis paralysis. So, so like it's really trying to find that messy middle and like becoming comfortable in the messy middle has been really important for me. Are there, I'm going to push you a little bit on this because not everyone like you or me will be able to write books or have podcasts and, or will even have that be their like medium of experimentation. Right. Of course. And yeah. the experiment has to like continue into how we live as well. And that that's the only way the work is meaningful. So I'm wondering like, what does experimenting in your life look like? Yeah, I mean, there's so I mean, there's so many different ways that like that it plays out. Like what I think about, like when I think about equity, what I, I'm trying to do, which I definitely don't do perfectly, is to really to have a lifestyle and life that practices equity, you know, in every interaction that I have, you know. So, um, you know, one of the things I practice, for example, is. I have a belief that every human being has uh, has equal value and that every human being is unique, which means that every human being has a 
unique lived experience, a unique perspective, a wisdom they uniquely hold that I can learn from, you know, so like, that's something that I can practice. What does it look like, you know, if I'm at the supermarket or across differences or talking to another white man, whatever it is, like, what does it look like for me to have that, that orientation and to practice that, you know, is, is one example. I think also, you know, I'm a new parent. We have a two-year-old, uh, almost two-year-old. And, you know, what does it look like for me to parent differently than than my parents parented me? That I think one of the things that I've I've learned is really important for mental health is validating people's emotions, uh, validating our kids' emotions. And I think my parents did their best with that, but I think, you know, they didn't have that as an explicit practice and then came up short on that. You know, so like that's something that I I try to do consistently with my son now. And I think it's particularly important because he's male that there's a societal pressure for him to lose access to those emotions. So I think the more that I can help protect that and nurture that, you know, that's experimentation. Uh, You know, so there's so many different ways that this could play out. And, you know, living an equitable life is not, you know, it doesn't, necessarily mean being the hero or the person who everyone knows is making the change that it really can be these very small things or seemingly small things uh, that really make a difference. And like with my son, you know, who has privilege, you know, that if that, you know, if that validating emotions means that he can process his anger as opposed to having to explode out, uh, you know, at, at women, for example, in his life like that, that is a step toward equity, you know, so I really try to hold this notion that, you know, even the smallest things really matter. And also that there are limits to what any of us individually can do. And that that's actually a good thing. You know, like when I think about someone like Donald Trump, it's good that there's limits to the power uh, that he has. So, you know, there's a lot of folks who abuse power once they get a lot of it. So, you know, I'm not fighting those limits. I'm just trying to do what I can. That I, I appreciate that you also brought up parenting because there is a story in your book that has stayed with me that I have repeated to many people, including other guests in this podcast, um, where you talked about a conversation you had with your partner about um, equal, like being equal parents in an unequal world doesn't actually result in equity. Um, and I'm wondering if you can share that story and talk a little bit about how you process that, or you talk in the book about you, or you write about how that made you very uncomfortable and angry and then you work through it and that story has really stayed with me and I think represents so much of like so most of us are quote-unquote good people trying to do good things and we still fall short because we live in an unequal world and it it just says so much yeah I, I appreciate you asking about it and yeah happy to share a little bit of that anecdote and reflection you know so the the story that you're mentioning is that I had an interaction with uh, my partner, Pooja. Uh, we're actually high school sweethearts, so we go really far back. And, uh, you know, we were, so she's a uh, surgery resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, surgery residency is very intense. It's kind of like typically 80 hour weeks. Sometimes it's longer than that. Uh, that's tough for any person. It's particularly tough uh, for a woman, woman of color mom of color. Um, And so, you know, it's this interesting dynamic where, you know, like, as we were starting to talk about starting a family, 
uh, you know, that basically, you know, what she said to me, and I think she was kind of joking, uh, was like that if I really cared about equity, that I would be a stay at home, stay at home dad, uh, you know, and give her the opportunity to uh, have the, you know, in a way, like the resources that, you know, many of the white male surgeons have, which is a a spouse who takes care of everything at home so they can be fully focused on work. And uh, that that was an idea that made me really uncomfortable. I think it pushed buttons for me around, you know, uh, my sense of entitlement, the impact I wanted to have. And like, there's real complexity there that I, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this notion that, you know, we don't, that in my view, we don't want to flip the power structure. It's really about transforming the power structure. And so, you know, what does it look like for me to value my hopes, my dreams, my desire to contribute in society while also honoring hers, you know, and, and really looking at that in a, like a complex nuanced way uh, that it's not as simple as, you know, that, I do everything at home and she does nothing or vice versa, that it, it really is looking at, you know, like what are our needs at the time? What are our kids' needs? What capacity do we have to meet those needs for our son? And how do we allocate? And it's, uh, you know, we talk about things like 50-50 marriage or a marriage rooted in equality, but, you know, every week is different, you know? So for me, practicing equity is, you know, what does each of us need on any given day? What does our son need and who's best positioned to offer that? And really trying to maintain some fluidity, but also live some of those principles. And, you know, that we don't, we don't get it right all the time. And, you know, I also want to say like, there's times where, you know, because I do the majority of our work at home, like there's times where I felt resentment about that. And I think that sometimes that's unhealthy, that is rooted in entitlement, I feel. And then sometimes it's it's healthy in the sense that, you know, maybe there's things that are important to me that I'm sacrificing uh, in ways that I ideally wouldn't want to. So really trying to wrestle with that and, uh, you know, balance that, I think is a really important challenge. And I think there's no right answer that everyone's circumstances is a little bit different. It, for me, the, that story and everything you're exploring there really resonated very deeply because I'm in my early 30s. Most of my friends and I are starting to think about like, what would it look like if we want families or people have young children like you do? And it's something that comes up so often, especially with the young parents I know, where most of the women have said to me in one conversation or another, like, you know, we're all feminists and we're all... Most of, most of them work in spaces where we're trying to build a better world, trying to invest in our values. And also we're starting to see the fact that it doesn't really matter. We all kind of went in with this blind belief that if, if we can build families and relationships and communities that reflect our values, it'll all be okay because at least we'll have this bubble where like things are good and safe and we can come home to a place which like reflects our own values. And it turns out that even when you do that, like you live within a world that isn't equitable yet. Um, we had a, a conversation on this podcast uh, very recently with um, Elliot Ray, who talks a lot about fatherhood and like masculinity. And he was talking about how 
it's so rare in the UK, and I imagine it's the same in the US, much harder in the US, for men to ask for paternity leave, even though they might be entitled to it, because you don't see that in the culture around you, right? And so just like even creating the the spaces of equality feel like a brave step very often. And then it's also the the overwhelm of which I'm encountering and the people around me are encountering is even when we make things better in the in the little bubbles around us, it doesn't mean that we've made the world better, right? We still have to exist within the world. There's such a deep sense of disappointment and recognition I'm seeing all around me, uh, resignation around me of like, okay, well, what's the point if if things are still broken? And I know that wasn't the tone of your conversation, but I'm wondering when someone says to you or like, do you do you wrestle with the what's the point if things are still broken? Or what's the point of like making things better in this little space when all around us there is so much hate, there's so much brokenness and it, it's nobody's fault necessarily, but we're all just like prisoners of the system. Yeah, it's it's really tough, complicated question. I think what comes up for me as you speak on this topic is uh, Miriam Kaba, who's American activist. Uh, you know, she talks about this notion that hope is a discipline, you know, that like the idea that remaining hopeful, you know, that we can have a better, more just world is actually, it's something to practice. It's like exercise, like that it's a muscle that you can strengthen or that can atrophy if, if you don't really think of it as a practice. And, you know, that the way I've heard Ibram Kendi talk about this is that just, you know, that if you're going to choose between hopeful and hopeless, uh, that, why not choose hopeful and there's, you know, I could, I could have written a different book where I talk about how, uh, you know, with inequality being as high as it is with what we're doing to our planet and so forth that just, we're going to crash and burn and go extinct. Uh, that I, like, I could have written that book. And I think, I think I could have written it in a way that was like reasonably convincing given the way things are. But I think for me, you know, I, uh, I really have leaned into this practice of hope as a discipline and just that the the only way we have a shot at someday building that equitable world, you know, if not for ourselves, but for our kids and grandkids and great grandkids is to somehow nurture that hopefulness. And I, I, I want to be empathetic that uh, maybe it's easier for me to feel that hopefulness from my position, uh, but also, um, you know, I think there's there's something to be said for that, that across the board, that I think if if we're hopeful, there's there's some ability to manifest that in ways that are not possible if we're not. And what does the practice of hoping look like for you? Like, what gives you hope? How do you, if it's a muscle to exercise, it's very easy for us to say, like, remain hopeful, right? But what does that actually look like? Are there things that give you hope? Are there things you do? Are there places you turn to, people you turn to, books you read? Like, what what does it actually look like as a practice for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of things like practicing gratitude, practicing joy, you know, celebrating successes. You know, like, I, I can give a very concrete example of this with the book, which is, you know, as you know, is intended to be a social change book that we were we were very close to getting a couple you know major national interviews that i think would have helped amplify this in a new way and you know they were like almost booked you know and the uh 
you know, the producer declined uh, at the end of the process. And it was so, you know, it was so frustrating and disappointing to me to feel like, you know, this effort was so close to, you know, being able to reach a, a much wider audience, um, you know, and then that didn't happen, you know, so like there's, there's a version of that that is disappointing. And I think that it's important for me to acknowledge that I feel sad about that, like even in grieving the loss of that potential impact that might have occurred. So honoring all of those feelings, but also not letting, if possible, not letting those feelings overwhelm me that like we've had so many successes, like being able to participate in conversations with folks like you is wonderful, you know, so like, what is it, you know, what am I centering in my experience that am I, you know, picking at the negative and, you know, just saying, oh, it could have more impact than it does. So I'm going to feel down about that. Or do I try to really try to center the things that are good and that I can feel proud about and happy about? And, you know, it's not a perfect, a perfect way of looking at it. And I, I don't want to suggest that it's helpful to suppress disappointment, but I think working through that disappointment and then going back to the positive is one way I found to practice hope. That's, I mean, that, that I resonate with that as well, having done my own version of the book thing and getting the word out. Um, and I found when I was in your shoes that my fear was always, it's the same kinds of people who care deeply are going to listen to this or watch this or read this right and a question i had for you was like most of our audience is women um very diverse audience but mostly women mostly young women um who systemically will have less power than the the millionaires um and the rich white men you talk about but also like most of us many of us have some sort of privilege we all have spheres of influence for someone who's listening to this and is like trying to remain hopeful in a world where they're dealing with whatever version of oppression that they deal with personally. And also they, they're they not necessarily like the ones who hold the power, but want to start moving things and shifting things. How, like, what, what would you suggest to them? Because they're not necessarily the ones whose friends are going to be the rich white men. They're not necessarily the ones who are in those rooms but like we all have a responsibility collectively to do something and individually to do something and it can feel so overwhelming when you're like but i know that the guy with the power if he did the thing it would all be fine and i i don't have the power so now what it's quite a conundrum uh, for sure and and i think i'm really cautious about uh i'm really cautious about giving it you know advice or guidance to people who have a different location or positioning of the ecosystem as me. And I think, so I think what I would say actually is that my hope is that, you know, this book and some of the organizing we're doing in connection to the book, you know, is really complementary to, you know, the work that, that white women and people of color are already doing to advance social justice. And what I mean by that specifically is that, you know, I hope that, um, you know, that while I hope that, lots of folks will read this book. And I think there's something to learn for everybody, regardless of your background here, uh, in terms of this perspective, uh, that my lived experience is valuable, just like anybody else's. But also, you know, I think the main, the main request I would have uh, for listeners from the background that you describe is to, 
like get this book and its ideas in front of in front of men, in front of white men, in front of wealthy white men that are in your orbit. And like, let's share that responsibility of pushing the rock up the hill. That if you're somebody who's, you know, doing your best to push the rock up the hill and you're getting stuck at a certain point, like consider me in this book a resource to, you know, push it up a little further, a little faster. And, you know, we really see this book as more than a book that we're hoping that it really is an organizing campaign. I love the idea of the book being like a, a support system as you're pulling, as we're all pushing the boulder up the hill, because it can also feel like such a lonely journey sometimes where it's like, I am the only person in this room shouting for this and no one can see me or hear me. But at least like there are others out there and there are people like you who are doing the work. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, which you're... Uh, your perspective is very refreshing compared to so much that's out there is I find a lot of like the self-helpy stuff out there really irritating um, where so many of these problems are systemic right and it's like why are we telling women to lean in when like we exist in a really broken society or why are we telling people of color to speak up and ask for a raise when they're less likely to get one. It extends well beyond the workplace. It extends everywhere. But so much of like the advice doled out is very much like if you fix yourself, like it'll all be fine. And we see the one example, like who's generally the token who's used to like gaslight the rest of us into thinking that there's something wrong with us, which is why we haven't succeeded in a system that is set up to disempower us and make us fail. Um, but you really helped me rethink and reframe how I think about the role we all have as individuals, which is obviously we all have agency, we all have power, but also like, working on ourselves and becoming quote unquote better people, but like working through our traumas and things like that can help us become better citizens of our communities, which makes our world better, which is such a lovely way of reframing it, where it's not just that like, I can solve my problems and the world will all be fine, but more that we are, we exist in community always. And I just wanted you to talk more about that because I think it's wonderful. I think for me, you know, I think there's a notion around really, really believing in the, the little steps. I think many, many folks who are, are trying to do good have this fantasy of unlimited impact, like in the same way that you know, Jeff Bezos might have a fantasy about unlimited wealth and power that I think that many of us who are trying to do good have a fantasy about having a, an unlimited societal impact. And, um, you know, that in the same way that, you know, America is a pyramid scheme that, you know, leads to only Jeff Bezos being at the top, like, there's also a version of that pyramid sc scheme with impact that I think this fantasy that, oh, you know, like, will I be the next Martin Luther King or will I be the next Mother Teresa or wh or whatever famous name, uh, you know, I think is, is a fantasy that draws a lot of people into the work. And I think something I'm trying to lean into is like, what does it look like for me to uh, be okay, you know, and feel feel good about myself and feel like I'm enough as a person regardless of how much impact I have. And that's not to say I don't want to have an impact or I'm not going to try. But if my self-worth is connected to 
how much how much impact I have in society that that is, you know, there's a part of that recipe is very unhealthy. And so uh, I'm not sure if that answered your question directly, but that's what came up for me when you raised this topic. No, I, I, lo I love that. And it, it makes me just think of like, we're all greedy for something, right? And for some of us, it's impact where I'm like you and for me, it's impact. And for some people, it's money, but it's, it's like the greed is still at the center of it. It's just a different kind of greed for, for most of us. And like taking that greed away is the work, it sounds like, is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and there's, I don't think there's anything wrong, obviously, with wanting to have an impact in society, but I just don't, I don't, I don't want to feel like, yeah, my, my value as a human being does not depend on how much impact that I have, that I'm valuable as a human being, regardless of what, you know, what impact I have or what accolades I get or whatever else. And I think that's a really, that's a really hard lesson. And I think it's something that, that white men in particular can really benefit from learning because the stress of trying to be all powerful and all successful and whatever else uh, is makes us miserable. Like it's not fun trying to always compare yourself to others, always trying to climb the next mountain. Like sometimes it, it is more joyful to take a nap or, you know, hang out with your kid or whatever it may be. And so like, what does it look like to, yeah, to decenter some of those notions of, you know, what success means and what it means for us to be enough as a person. What does success mean to you right now? I think for me, it's um, re really about doing the the best I can within the sphere of influence that I have, you know, that I, I feel a responsibility to try to influence those who I can uniquely influence, you know, and, um, you know, so trying to fulfill that responsibility, I think that's how I would answer it in terms of the work. Uh, but I think, I think more broadly, I think, you know, it's, uh, I think the way I've come to think about it, I had a conversation in therapy where the therapist framed it as like, what does it look like to get our own needs met, not at the expense of others, but in relation to others? I think that's the, mm -hmm. like, that's the practice really that motivates me that I think there's, there's actually times where I've swung too far the other way in terms of self-sacrificing or, you know, you know, uh, even getting excited about like the idea of being a martyr in some kind or like really like giving up a lot or whatever it is. And, you know, what does it look like for me to uh, care about myself that like being a, being a martyr is heroic in a way, but it's also like the ultimate devaluing of, of my value as a human being. Yeah. So what does it look like for me to, um, yeah, to value myself, but to value myself as an equal to others that not as, you know, not as more than certainly, but also not less than and it's I think it's very hard to find that equilibrium. It's, it's actually such a revolutionary thing to just say, I am enough as a human because I am human. And we're all enough as humans, just as we are, where I often find it's easier to extend that empathy to others, but with ourselves is where we have to, 
we have also the most influence, right? When you look at spheres of influence, we have the biggest influence over how we exist. And so, so many of us will be harsher to ourselves or expect more or demand more. And it's such a revolutionary thing to, to also like hold space for your own humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it's, it's interesting how for me, I found that doing work across differences, like has actually enabled me to enhance my life and improve my own life and get my own needs met better. You know, so like, for example, you know, like you talked about being self self-critical, which is, I think, I think is common. It's something that like I am self-critical or I can be self-critical. And it really took working across differences to realize that when I was critical, it was, could be really hurtful given the societal power that I hold, you know, or the positional power I had as CEO or so, you know, on the path to learning how to be more supportive and less critical, you know, part of what I had to learn was that I needed to be more compassionate to myself, that, that if I am less critical of myself, I'm also going to be less critical of others and will need being critic need criticizing others less, you know, to lift myself up, you know, so it's this interesting thing where, you know, that having more compassion for other people has actually enabled me to have more compassion for myself. And that leads me to be a healthier, happier person than I would be otherwise. That's really lovely. Um, I'm very conscious of the fact that we are running out of time. So I'm going to ask you our last question, which we ask everyone. And we've kind of been talking around it for a little bit, but this podcast is called The Revolutions with the idea that most change doesn't come in one fell swoop, but comes in like the, the daily and the things that we can keep doing every day um, to make the world a little bit better. And even though problems are systemic, we all still have agency. So for someone listening, and again, you know, most of our listeners are younger, um, mostly women, but for someone listening who is very conscious of like, wow, the brokenness of the world and we all have some power, I have some power, I've read Garrett's book, loaned it to a friend, I want to do something, I want to make like that one little revolution, I want to have some impact, um, Where is some, what is one thing someone could do, What's, or several things someone could do, I guess, but what does the starting point look like for you? Absolutely, that I, you know, like you said earlier, like there's no one answer. Um, but I think, I think what comes up for me is a starting point that I found it really valuable to, to join organizations and be in communities of, of people who have similar values, similar aspirations. And in some cases, you know, there's a unique value in collaborating with people who have a similar location, uh, in society that it, uh, some call that affinity spaces or caucus spaces that. Um, being part of communities where, yeah, people have similar values, similar aspirations, um, you know, are looking at things from a similar lens, from a similar place is so valuable. You know, there's so many different organizations out there where you can meet like-minded folks and feel less alone in, in the work. And my experience is that if I feel alone or lonely, like even the smallest challenges can feel insurmountable. But if I'm surrounded, you know, by a group of people who validate my values, validate my aspirations and are also fighting for those things, uh, that I can feel like I have a lot more, a lot more power than when I'm by myself. And so 
uh, I do think that that's something that um, that any of us really can benefit from is is having more community. Uh, so we have more support in the work we're trying to do so that we, we don't get burned out. We don't give up. We don't lose hope. How have you figured out where to start looking for a community? Cause we hear that a lot and it's very much like a core belief of ours as well. A community is so important. It's at the heart of so much, but for so many people like the, how do I even get started finding my people is the the stumbling block of like, do I just Google things and like find groups in my name? It just, it feels like a, oof. what do we do? And for you, how, what has been your path into finding the right communities for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting question and it's complicated. And I think it's different based on geography. Like I know a lot of us, you know, organizations and communities, I know fewer in other places. Um, but I think the way I've experienced it is like, first of all, like a handful of like one-on-one -on -one conversations, like with people who share your values and asking them, you know, what are you part of? Like what inspires you, uh, you know, can make a really big difference. Um, you know, I think there's online, there's a growing lists of, of efforts. That's one of the things that we have on our website is a whole list of a bunch of organizations that people could join, be part of support. Um, you know, so, so that's increasingly available. And I think, I think one thing that comes up for me is like a principle for engaging community is like that I've, I've really wanted to, to be part of spaces that, that really value everybody's humanity in the space, uh, including my own, you know, so, you know, there's this interesting thing that can sometimes happen in social justice spaces, for example, where there's very few white men and kind of all the anger in the room goes at those few folks, you know, and, you know, that I, I can absorb that to a degree, but I have my limits, you know, so what does it look like for me to look for spaces that feel healthy to me, not places that are going to allow me to dominate the conversation or things like that, but just really be a full participant in that community. And I think that, uh, I think it's really challenging to find that for any of us, you know, like whether it's because of systems of oppression or even in some cases like biases of how people typically think about privileged people, you know, so uh, like really looking for, looking for spaces that, that do a good job of holding everybody's humanity, uh, I think is an amazing thing when we can find it. Definitely. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? It's a good question. I think the the one thing that comes up for me that I think is important to share is that, so this book is structured as a royalties cooperative. Uh, so uh, what that means in practice, so Alan Kwabana Frimpong, who's a movement philanthropy strategist, helped raise some of the initial money to launch the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, him and I co-created this cooperative together. And so six, seven, so the royalties, 86% of my author royalties will go to social justice partners in exchange for guidance and accountability on this project. And it's explicitly a no strings attached uh, agreement, meaning that the organizations we're partnering with, they can criticize me, they can criticize the book, they can divest from our collaboration. Uh, if they see a need for that, and none of that would impact, you know, whether they receive royalties in perpetuity from this project. 
and uh, also just let folks know that if if they do buy this book that uh, the vast majority of the proceeds that I would have received will go to social justice groups. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for this conversation. This is really wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Garrett for this wonderful conversation. To learn more about Garrett, where you can buy his book, check out our show notes.